Again, I want to remind you guys that uh, we have got a guest speaker this morning. Keaton Halley is his name. Comes from the Creation Ministries International. He's a native of Chicago, but lives in Atlanta where that organization is now. And uh, just so you know, kind of his background, he's a graphics design guy who was praying and seeking the Lord. Uh, had a passion for uh, things of creation related to the field of apologetics. Just so you know, when I showed up to Bible college and somebody said, I'm studying apologetics, I thought... Why would you want to study how to apologize? Uh, it just didn't make any sense to me. Apologetics is uh, how to defend your faith, not how to apologize for your faith. And so uh, he studied that at Viola University. And so he's going to come now and share with us. Did a fantastic job during Sunday school. I think you'll really enjoy the presentation. And when he's finished, uh, I'll wrap us up and give you a few final instructions. But Keaton, I'm going to pray for you. And then you come on and, and speak as the Lord has laid on your heart. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for bringing Keaton our way. And Lord, we thank you for his passion and for his knowledge of things related to creation. Lord, we thank you especially for being the creator God who created everything that we've ever seen. And Father, we thank you that by your mere speaking, all things came into existence. God, we pray that through the words that Keaton shares with us, that we would be encouraged in our faith, that we would be strengthened and equipped to give a reason for the faith that we have. Lord, I pray now that you would feed your people, and I pray that you would use Keaton to do that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, greetings again. Um, how many of you are here for Sunday school and learned something new? <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, and if you, if you didn't get a chance to attend, we talked about dinosaurs in our first hour together. And uh, maybe you can ask one of the people that, that raised their hands what they learned in the first hour. Um, well, I want to tell you a bit more about me and our ministry uh, at this time, uh, we are, again, an international group. We're in seven countries. We've been around for 40 years, and we are an apologetics ministry. So our purpose is to help equip believers with the defense of their of their faith and show um, even the, the world at large that, that we have good reason to trust the Bible as the Word of God. And um, I've been doing this for about five years. I um, travel around and speak on this subject and we also produce resources, materials like our website and, and books and DVDs and, and magazines and so forth. Uh, but I'm just one of a team of speakers. In our U.S. office alone, we have seven gentlemen total, uh, some scientists and, and theologians and so forth. And uh, as we travel around, our other speakers tell me they get asked certain questions more commonly than others. For some of our speakers, their number one question is, what about the dinosaurs? How do you make sense of those? Uh, as a Christian. Others get asked about carbon dating or about where Cain got his wife and, and many other questions. But it turns out that the number one question that I receive as I speak on this subject is, how old are you anyway? I don't know why that is exactly. I guess I just have a kind of a youthful look, but it the answer might surprise you. It turns out I'm going to be turning 40 years old in September. So... That just goes to show you that those scientific ways of estimating the age of things don't always give you the right answer. Uh, no, better to, to consult a history book if one is available. And you realize that's what we have in the scripture. We have an eyewitness testimony from someone who never lies. God himself inspired that book. And so it's an accurate representation of the past. How human beings and living things and the planet itself, the universe, all came to be in the recent past. Well, again, my, my goal this morning is to equip you with the defense of your faith and to help you understand in particular this, this challenging subject of origins. Because uh, I understand how this can be controversial, um, you know, even within the church sometimes, but certainly between Christians and the world, where uh, it, it might be intimidating for you folks, thinking, you know, I, maybe science isn't my favorite subject and I'm not sure how to answer these challenging questions. Well, I just want to equip you with some of the answers here this morning, but, but really whet your appetite so you know how to learn more and equip yourself with the answers. And, and I wrestled with this issue as a young man. You know, for many people, this is a stumbling block, this creation versus evolution controversy. Because I myself grew up in the church. Um, my mom led me to Christ when I was only seven years old, before I can even remember it. So I was, a, I was a Christian as long as I can, I can recall. Uh, I had a good church home, godly parents, but at the same time I had a foot in the secular world. I, I went to public school, for example. 
I had non-Christian friends, and I watched television. It's true. Uh, and so that led me to wrestle a bit with my faith as I grew up. And I had many questions myself. I wondered, how, how do I know that the Bible's really true? How do I know that there is a God in the first place? What do I do with those bones that people dig up out of the ground and, and they say, they claim that these connect humans back to non-humans, back to ape ancestors? Uh, I wondered about the dinosaurs. That was one of my questions too. If God made everything in six days, where do you fit dinosaurs into history? Well, that's why we answered that the first hour together. And here was another one I had. If the creator is a God of love, then what happened? What, why is the world so full of death and suffering and pain? Why does God allow all that? Now, those are only four of the many, many questions that our ministry deals with on a regular basis. Thankfully, as I got older, I heard a creation speaker in my high school years, and I found that these questions have strong answers. There's every reason to believe the Bible and to trust our lives to God's revelation. But how many of you folks, if you had to answer these four questions right here this morning, does that make your heart race a little faster if if we took a pop quiz here together? (laughs) How well would you do? Do you even know where to look to find the answers to these questions? And also, if you know the answers yourselves, have you, have you passed on that knowledge to your, your children, your grandchildren? Are we training and equipping the young people here at this church, in this community, to, to have those answers? Or are we just expecting them to have a blind faith? We need to, to show our young people that we don't have to turn off our brains to accept the Bible. No, there are excellent reasons that, that support Christianity as the truth. Well, you know, the, the Bible actually commands us to, to be ready to give answers. This is kind of a theme verse for our ministry. 1 Peter 3.15 says that in our hearts we should honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Or some translations say, be ready to give an answer. And who do we do that to? Well, anybody that asks us. If someone approaches you and says, hey, why do you believe the Bible? Are you already prepared with those answers? Do you know what to say in advance? Or does that scare you? <laughs> uh, do you not want to have uh, that test time? Well, well testing questions aren't so studied in advance, right? If we know the answers ahead of time, then we, we might actually look forward to having those occasions where people ask us why we believe what we do. So we, so we want to come alongside you folks as a ministry and help teach you some of those uh, basic answers. You don't have to become a brain and an encyclopedia of apologetics, but but learn some of the the basics, the common questions that people ask, like those four I touched on uh, moments ago. Now, one of the ways we we like to equip you is through our materials. Our website is a great resource. The address is kind of a long, complicated one, though, so you you might want to get a pen and paper out to write this down. It's creation.com. Actually, that's not so hard, is it? (laughs) You you guys can remember that, creation.com. Students especially, if you have a paper um, coming up on any aspect dealing with how do we know the Bible is true or evolution, things like that, um, consult our website. There's a wealth of resources there available to you for free. We have over 10,000 articles online, actually, and lots of video content as well if you're not a big reader. So what we do is we answer the questions through the website. And also, if you want to get our information delivered into your home on a regular basis, we'll send you answers to these different questions uh, through our email newsletter. We call that InfoBytes. It comes out about once per week, and you can cancel at any time. It's also free. If you're interested in signing up for that today, then you can just, um, we're going to pass around in moments uh, these sign-up sheets, these forms. If you want to just put down your name, your email, and your zip code on there as well, then we'll get you signed up for that. All right, so my volunteers can go ahead and, and pass those around at this time. Now, as those are being circulated, let's let's talk about why your why your average Christian should even care about this subject of creation versus evolution. Again, I think many of us are intimidated thinking this is, this is technical science and maybe that's not my favorite subject, but Peter told us that all believers should be ready to give answers, again, because these are stumbling blocks that prevent people from coming to faith. And I think Jesus also said something that's helpful along these lines. Here in John chapter 3, verse 12, is the chapter where Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, telling him his need to be born again. It's, it's sharing the gospel message. 
But in that same context where Jesus gives us John 3.16, right, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, before he gets to John 3.16, in, in verse 12, Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe those, how are you going to believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? And so I think what the meaning here, if, if you think about it, we, we can apply it this way. The Bible is a book that talks about heavenly things. We know it's a, it's a spiritual book, right? The Bible tells us spiritual truths like God's standard of morality. Uh, it tells us that Jesus was the Son of God. It tells us how to go to heaven, ultimately. But do you realize the Bible isn't only a spiritual book? It also contains subjects more in our everyday experience. Things like uh, history. The Bible contains a lot of history, doesn't it? And if the Bible made mistakes in history, would we trust it for our eternal salvation? No, why, why would you? It wouldn't make sense. If, if, if the Bible contained errors, it couldn't be the word of God. And does the Bible touch on science at all? Well, its purpose is not to give us all the details about astrophysics or molecular biology, but where it talks about creation, it's touching upon the natural world, upon scientific things. And so, for example, does the Bible talk about biology? Yes, the very first chapter discusses um, living things, that God made distinct kinds of animals and plants. You guys can all have a seat, actually. You, you don't have to stand there and wait for, for those all. We'll just let people pass them around, and we can collect them again in a minute. But um, does, does the Bible talk about biology? In, in the first chapter, it says that God made living things. He created plants and animals after their kinds. Does the Bible address geology? The study of rocks and fossils? Yes, it says there was a worldwide flood, as we talked about last hour. That would result in uh, animals and plants being buried all over the planet. Does the Bible address astronomy? Yes, it says there was sun, moon, and stars that, that God made on day four of creation week. And when did God make the earth? The earth was actually here from the very first day, meaning that the earth is three days older than the rest of the objects in the universe. You ever think about the Bible in these ways? It actually tells us about astronomy. Not all the details, but some big picture principles. Does the Bible address mankind, anthropology? Yeah, it tells us in the beginning God made just two people, Adam and Eve. How did, how did God make the first man, Adam? He took the dust of the ground to make a man. What, what about Eve? Eve was made out of Adam's rib, right? So the Bible talks about anthropology. Now, the, the challenge, though, that we face in our culture in this day and age is the world is also teaching young people about all these same subjects. What is the world communicating about anthropology today? They say that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. There weren't just a pair of people in the beginning. Nobody came from the dust of the ground or from ribs. They say the Bible gets it wrong about anthropology. What does the world say about astronomy? They say the stars are billions of years old, much older than the earth, whereas the Bible said the earth came before the stars. What does the world say about geology? They say there never was a global flood. They say we can explain all the rocks and fossils by slow, gradual processes over millions of years. So there's no room for a global flood in that story. What does the, bio, what does the world say about biology? That living things all evolved from one another. They're all related in one tree of life. So there weren't separate origins of living things to reproduce after their own kind like the Bible teaches. And so when, when students encounter these challenges to their faith, it, it may not be a direct attack on the gospel. You know, think about what, what happens in our public schools typically. It's not that students are being told that Jesus is not the Savior who died for your sins, but those same teachers might be undermining the Bible, the, the gospel indirectly, by saying the Bible's earthly things are not true. Real science, they say, proves the world is millions of years old, proves living things evolved, so Genesis gets it wrong. You see the problem that we face? And what do we do about that? Well, think about how this affects the, the lives of many real people. It can be a stumbling block to prevent people from coming to faith in the first place. It can also overthrow the, the, the Christian upbringing that people have. Think about a man like Charles Templeton. You may know of Templeton. He was a famous evangelist back in the 1950s. He spoke to massive crowds, worked with Youth for Christ. This is the kind of um, group that he would preach to. And he won many to the Lord, actually. And yet Templeton himself, even as an adult, 
had some doubts. And as those doubts began to grow, due largely to issues surrounding science and the Bible, how to reconcile the two, Templeton thought, well, eventually I better get some training, shore up those doubts. I'll go back to seminary. But he went to Princeton where they taught him to believe in evolution and just add that to the Bible. Well, I think Templeton became more consistent than his professors. He realized if evolution is a fact, then the Bible's earthly things are not true. Therefore, why should I believe the Bible's heavenly things? And sadly, that led him to abandon his faith altogether. He actually ended up becoming an atheist. And before his death, he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And in that book, he said, I believe there, there is no God in the biblical sense, but that all life just came from timeless evolutionary forces over millions of years. And how many other people have that same kind of story where they, they go off to college or something, they, they haven't been well-trained, and so they abandon their faith, thinking that science is incompatible with Genesis. But, but it really doesn't have to turn out like that because there are excellent answers I read through Templeton's book many years ago myself, and it struck me that a lot of his objections to Christianity were pretty superficial. If you just knew some of the basics, you'd be able to answer those challenges. And, and most of his objections also seem to focus on one book of the Bible in particular. Any guesses as to what book of the Bible that would be? The book of Genesis. And, and I think that the reason for that is is because Genesis is like a foundation. If you think about it, in a sense, it sets the stage for all of the rest of Scripture. It teaches us about those important events in history that God created the world. He made humans in his image, that, um, that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against their creator, and that's why death and suffering entered the world. And so all of our theology ultimately is, is tied back to that, that beginning, that foundation in Genesis. This morning, I'd like to actually introduce you folks to an up-and-coming young theologian who can illustrate the importance of Genesis for me. But she's only seven years old, so I'll let her mother tell you her story. A Christian mom wrote this letter. She said, My seven-year-old daughter Jessica is a deep thinker when it comes to theological questions. Recently, we discussed why bad things happen sometimes, rereading the story of Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. Now, later that week, Jessica was ill and had to stay home from school. Feeling miserable, she told me, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit, I wouldn't be sick. That's right. But before I could answer, she added, of course, if they didn't eat it, we'd be sitting here naked. (laughs) Now, I like the way children think. (laughs) And for a seven-year-old, Jessica has a pretty robust Christian worldview. She knows that what happened in Eden didn't stay in Eden. No, because Adam was a real man in history. And his actions impact our lives right down to the present. So, so Jessica thought of Genesis like a foundation. For, for many different things. For the Bible's teaching on clothing, for example. Uh, I noticed you folks all have clothes on this morning, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, but wh- why do we do that? It, there's a moral reason, isn't there? It's not just to stay warm when the, when the weather gets chilly. It goes back to the Garden of Eden, how God clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skins after they first sinned. Because sin even corrupts our innocence. How about the Bible's teaching on marriage? That's an important doctrine, isn't it? The Bible has a lot to say about marriage. And when Jesus was challenged about this subject, he showed how it's rooted in Genesis. Do you remember that the Pharisees came to trap Jesus one day? They said, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And how did Jesus respond? Do you remember? Jesus said, well, first of all, was it, what does it tell you in the law that, that Moses gave you, the Old Testament law? And the Pharisees said, well, Moses permitted divorce. And Jesus said, that's true. God allowed it. But that was only because of the hardness of your hearts, he said, right? But then he, he went on to say, but have you not read And he was about to quote from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Haven't you read that history about how God made Adam and Eve is a paraphrase of what what Jesus said. He said, "Um, haven't you read that he who made them from the beginning of creation made them male and female? And, And Adam and Eve were historically literally one flesh, Eve coming from Adam's side. Therefore, Jesus said, don't separate what God has joined together. So marriage is tied to Genesis. Why are we born with a sin nature, though? 
And why is the death rate in this world 100%? Does that bother anyone besides me? Well, the, the penalty, the wages of sin is death. And God warned Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat from that tree, I told you not to, you will surely die. And so this is another way of illustrating the same point I've been making. Think about how the gospel then is tied to Genesis. The whole reason we need a savior is to to fix the problem that began with Adam and Eve. And so if we undermine, if, if the culture around us is teaching people, teaching students that Genesis is not trustworthy, science proves the world is millions of years old, that evolution is a fact, if people no longer believe in the authority of the book of Genesis, what happens to all these other biblical teachings, the heavenly things, the, the moral truths, the gospel itself becomes less and less persuasive to the people around us. And so I submit if we want to be effective at reaching a lost world with the gospel message and, and winning these culture war battles over things like abortion, same-sex marriage, and so on, well, then we need to fight this battle foundationally. We need to, to, to get to the root of the issue where people don't think they can trust the book of Genesis. And for so many, that is why they don't trust the rest. Now, is this just my understanding of, of Genesis? Because I understand how this can be controversial within the church. You know, some people say to me, and, and those of us at Creation Ministries International, they'll say, but, but hold on, other Christians don't understand Genesis the way you do because you, you believe that it teaches six literal days in the recent past. You believe that there was a global flood in Noah's time. Others say it was just a local event in the Middle East. Isn't that just your interpretation of Genesis? Well, not at all. The Bible clearly speaks against these ideas of millions of years and evolution. Let me just give you one major way that it does that. The whole reason people in our culture believe the world is millions of years old is largely because they interpret their rock record as having been deposited slowly and gradually over millions of years, right? Like you see in the walls of the Grand Canyon, they say these layers took a long time to form, one year after year after year. And if you count up millions of layers in the Earth's crust, it must have taken millions of years to lay down the whole stack. Well, if millions of years were true, then it's not just a lot of time that has gone by. We also need to think about what has happened during all that time. Because we find something inside those rock layers. You know what we find in the rock layers? Many of them? Billions and billions of dead things. We find fossils, don't we? Now, if the world were millions of years old, that would mean that death has been around for millions of years. But what does the Bible teach us about the origin of death? Was death always here long before mankind? Ever since there's been life, has there been death alongside of it? No, the Bible says that God made a good world in the beginning. In fact, those early chapters of Genesis talk about the Garden of Eden. Here's a rare photograph of Eden. Uh, I, somebody snapped this on day six of creation week, I've been told. Uh, and that was after God had finished making all things. He made the plants, the animals. There's Adam and Eve standing there hiding behind a bush. I guess that's, even though it's a good world at this time, God pronounced it very good in Genesis 131. You can't show a pre-fall picture to a post-fall audience. I think you understand why that is. But uh, when, when God called everything very good, doesn't he mean that it's, it's free from death and suffering, free from, from uh, pain and, and ugliness and brutality and animals eating one another? Well, yes, but if God used millions of years to create, then Adam and Eve were standing on top of a massive graveyard, that fossil record representing eons and eons of death and pain and bloodshed and suffering. You see how that, that's really incompatible with what Genesis tells us. God didn't make a world full of death and suffering and call that very good. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Because we, we also find thorns and thistles deep down in those fossil layers. We also find evidence of diseases in things like dinosaur bones. Did you know that some dinosaurs had arthritis, cancer, broken bones, bite marks from other dinosaurs? Is that the world God initially made and said it's all very good? Cancer is very good? Arthritis is very good? No, the, this, this idea of millions of years doesn't just contradict, you know, the meaning of the Hebrew word day in Genesis. It, it goes against the whole Bible's overarching story from start to finish, how God made a good world, a, a world free from death and suffering, and then only because of sin, death entered the world. 
And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a new heavens and a new earth to, to restore the world back to the way that it once was. Adam's sin affected the rest of nature, as we read about in Romans chapter 8, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, it's just like when a king makes a bad decision, it can impact the rest of his kingdom. Well, God put Adam and Eve in charge, just like we learned about in the children's lesson. And so when they sinned, the rest of creation fell along with them. To summarize the Bible's teaching, it's that man came first and brought death into the world. But do you realize that if evolution, or even if just the millions of years are true, then death came first and brought man into the world. These, these two stories, these two perspectives on history are really polar opposites. Even though many well-meaning Christians try to make them agree, let's just be honest and recognize there's no way to logically harmonize these different stories. And think also about how how practical this is. You might think, well, this is just a bit of theological hair-splitting. Not at all, because do you remember the four questions I asked at the very beginning? Uh, One of them was, why would a loving God create a world filled with death and suffering? Well, if you understand Genesis as real history, take it at face value, do you you see how you have an answer to that question? Your answer is, God didn't make a world filled with death and suffering. He made a good world. And who messed it up? We did. We did. But if you believe the world is millions of years old, then you have to say that God did make a world filled with death and suffering. Then how do you answer that challenge of why would a loving God allow this? It's very different approaches if you have a different view of the past. And again, think about how this is tied to the gospel message. If death and suffering was always here, that's the way God set it up in the beginning. Then why does the Bible tell us the wages of sin is death? Why why do we need, need a savior at all, to come and and physically die on a cross for our sins. Well, it's because death wasn't here to begin with. Death is an intruder. It's the last enemy to be destroyed, is what the Bible says. Look at the way the Apostle Paul actually connects the gospel to Genesis. Here he compares Adam with Jesus, who the Bible calls the last Adam. So the Apostle Paul writes that, "...for as by a man came death..." referring to Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So which of these two men is not essential for the gospel? We actually need both the historical Jesus and the historical Adam in order for the gospel to even make sense. We need a savior because of the actions of that first man, Adam. I I like the way that somebody once put it that you can't understand the good news of the New Testament until you understand the bad news in Genesis. <laughs> if you think about it, the, the bad news is essential for our faith, the story of the fall, that historical account in Genesis. Now, if all that's correct, then what are we Christians to do with the science? If the Bible's not compatible with evolution in millions of years, does that mean we need to hide our heads in the sand and deny science itself? No, our ministry, uh, we are actually fans of science. We think, and we employ a number of PhD scientists on our staff because we think when rightly understood, science helps to support the word of God. The challenge, though, is that our, our, our culture, our media sources like to portray this controversy as though Christians have to attack science itself. That's not what we're advocating, a war on science is what they claim, or it's God versus science. No, Science helps to support the Word of God. But, but one of the difficulties here is that the word science itself can have a variety of meanings. So when most people hear the word science, they, they naturally think of what's often called operational science. By operational science, I mean ex, an exploration of, of the world as it regularly operates, um, looking at the laws of nature, uh, making uh, looking at the, the present day and making observations. You can, you can do experiments and repeat them over and over to check your results against the real world. Now, that kind of science is very powerful. It it's, it's actually comes out of a biblical worldview because the Bible provides the, the proper foundation for science itself by telling us that God is a God of order, 
And he's created the world. The world is not divine. We have permission to investigate it. We have dominion over it. Um, and in order to understand and exercise that dominion, we have to investigate nature. And, and that kind of science has led to technology like smartphones. It's led to modern medicine. It's put men on the moon. It's a very powerful tool. And so that's why evolutionists want to say their theory is part of science because of the tremendous authority and respect that science has. But if you think about it, both creation and evolution don't belong to that category. They're not observations that you can make of the present world. They're stories about the past. And when you're researching the past, it's a very different kind of science we call historical science. Now there, it's much harder to check your your theories against the real world because you just have fragmentary clues in the present and you have to tell stories about the past. You can't observe it directly. You can't repeat it in the laboratory. And so your starting assumptions will play a much greater role in governing what conclusions that you come to. So let's apply that distinction to some specifics here, all right? If we talk about fossils for a little while, um, if I ask you the question, how did we come to have so many billions of creatures, plants and animals, all entombed in the Earth's crust, turned to stone? What, what is it that causes fossils to form? And how long ago did these fossils form? These are questions about the past, aren't they? We have to use historical science to research those questions. So our worldview comes into play. Now, the evolutionists often give people the impression that fossils form slowly and gradually, don't they? In fact, if you call another person a fossil, what are you saying about them? <laughs> you see how we associate fossils with being old or ancient. Why, why do we do that? We've been trained to think that way by the evolutionists. But do fossils really form slowly and gradually? Are they really millions of years old? Well, think about it this way. If you have a goldfish bowl at home, what happens to your goldfish when they die ordinarily? Do they sink to the bottom and lie there for hundreds of years waiting to get slowly covered up by sediment? <laughs> No, often they float to the top, don't they? If you don't believe me, you can do a real scientific experiment. Just drop a bit of cyanide in your fish tank and see what happens. Um, but actually, more importantly than floating to the top is that they get picked apart by scavengers and decay from bacteria and so forth. They won't turn into fossils in an ordinary setting. They're, they're gone in a matter of months. So if you wanted to form a goldfish fossil, how would you have to do it? Well, you could sneak up behind him when he's not looking with a cement truck and then unload a pile of concrete right on top of his head. And if you bury him deep enough, now he'll be protected from falling apart. He'll still be dead, <laughs> sadly. But the burrowing organisms won't be able to get to him. And so his bones will, will remain in place. And with the right chemistry in the water, they can turn into stone in a hurry. Millions of years are not required at all. And, and we don't just have to argue from thought experiments. Let me show you some real-life examples of fossils that form very rapidly. Here is an ichthyosaur. This is a, a computer-generated image because these are extinct as far as we know today. But we find ichthyosaurs in the fossil record. It's actually a marine reptile. And this particular ichthyosaur we know was buried very suddenly because right here where the arrow is pointing is a baby ichthyosaur almost fully out of the birth canal. In other words, this is a mother ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth to live young when both animals suddenly got overwhelmed and buried by sediment and couldn't even finish the process. And it doesn't take millions of years to give birth. Praise the Lord for that, right, ladies? Uh, but not just, not just the burial happens suddenly. What about turning into stone? Here's a fossil hat from New Zealand. It was once a soft felt hat. But it got buried by volcanic ash, and only 20 years after that eruption is when they dug it out, and it had already evolved from a soft hat into a hard hat in just 20 years. Um, obviously, they didn't have hats millions of years ago. And, and my, there are heaps of examples like these. Um, here's one of my favorite fossils, the petrified teddy bears from uh, England, where they make these. You can buy them at gift shops or buy them online. Uh, the way they're made is they just take soft objects like a teddy bear, hang it on a string nearby a mineral-rich well water. So the water splashes onto the objects and they soak it up. But as it evaporates away, it leaves behind just the hard minerals. And how long does it take to cover a bear in flowstone? 
only three to five months is all. So fossils and rocks, these things can form very rapidly. We, we just have heaps and heaps of examples like this. And an honest evolutionist will acknowledge this. Yes, fossils can form very rapidly. But they say fossils still prove evolution because we've found so many fossils that, that show us that they're intermediate types of creatures, right? The, these links that you creationists keep telling us are missing. Well, the evolutionists claim that they've found many of the missing links. Do you realize that? Here's one example that made the cover of science back in 1983. They named this animal Pachycetus. Pachycetus means the whale from Pakistan, where it was found. Now, you have to understand what evolutionists believe about how whales came to be is that because they're mammals, they're more closely related to mammals that live on the land than they are to fish, for example. So evolutionists say that a four-legged land-dwelling creature migrated back into the ocean and over millions of years slowly transformed into our modern-day whales. Did whales come from four-legged land-dwelling creatures? Well, here's a, an animal that looks like he's sort of in between, doesn't he? He's, he's got four limbs, but his body is streamlined. Apparently, he's got a lot of blubber to keep him warm, diving in the depths of the ocean. Um, his, his limbs look a bit like they're becoming paddle-like. Yeah? Um, he could be a good candidate for a transition into a whale. Except that's just a drawing. You realize that? This is the way they confuse the children in the classroom. They show them pictures rather than the evidence. What was the evidence that they found to make this drawing of Pachycetus? Well, here are the bones they found. Nothing below the neck and not even the whole skull, just the shaded parts that you see there. The whole reason they thought Pachycetus is related to whales is because of the tiny bone in its inner ear, which it turns out, years later, they found much more of the skeleton, and the ear bones of Pachycetus don't actually resemble the, the whale bones, uh, the ear ears of whales very well. But even more importantly, the, the rest of the skeleton clearly defied their original expectations. Now we know this animal had hooves and probably spent all its time on the land and was a speedy runner. And here's the way they reconstruct Pachycetus today, which is quite a different picture from their original evolutionary guesses, isn't it? No hint of blubber or a blowhole on this creature anywhere. This is not related to whales at all. Just an extinct rodent. Uh, well, we could talk about many other types of missing links. How about among human remains? One of the four questions I asked at the beginning was, what about those fossils of ape men? Well, Sometimes those are based on just fragmentary remains. Like here's Boxgrove Man they found in 1993 in England. Now, again, you want to distinguish between the artwork on the one hand and the actual evidence on the other. Look at the artwork, the drawings from the newspapers. Boxgrove Man has a pretty much human-like body, not so different from yours or mine, um, except that maybe he's a bit more hairy. <laughs> but look at the, the face. He's got a very subhuman, brutish, even ape-like head, doesn't he? Well, what was the evidence they found for Boxgrove Man? You're looking at it. It's a piece of shin bone, not the whole shin, and a couple of teeth. And they admitted at the time the shin and the teeth were 100% human. So why then did they give Boxgrove Man an ape-like face? Well, it's because they dated these remains to three to 400,000 years old. And according to their theory, at that time, there weren't any modern-looking human beings around, so they have to downgrade these remains to make them look ape-like to fit with their story. It's not based on the evidence at all. Well, let's do one more ape-man. We don't have time to cover them all this morning, but Neanderthals are the most famous that you've heard of, also pronounced Neanderthal. Well, back in 1909, here's the way that they drew Neanderthals, a very brutish-looking uh, fellow. He's, he's stooped over. He's... Um, uh, he's sort of got bent knees, he's carrying a club, he's full of fur. He, he looks like King Kong, doesn't he? <laughs> but is that really how Neanderthals looked? Well, do you realize the more that evolutionists have found these bones, they've found lots of different skeletons from different individuals. Certainly Neanderthals existed, but evolutionists have rehabilitated their image over the years, realizing they looked a lot more like you and me. Here's the way they draw them or sculpt them in their museum displays and in their magazines. Now, by the way, the how well they, they trimmed and combed their hair and cleaned the dirt off their faces, that's not part of the fossil evidence. You realize that? That's somebody's artistic license. Uh, and if you gave these folks a shave and a shower, would they even stand out in a crowd today? 
No, dress him up in a suit. Um, you wouldn't even know who the Neanderthal is. Uh, that's because they are fully human descendants of Adam and Eve. These would have been people. We find their remains in Asia, Europe, the Middle East. Um, people after the flood, descendants of Noah and his family. To illustrate this point, one kind of humorous news story at the time, the BBC released their new Neanderthal man sculpture. The newspaper headline said, BBC's Neanderthal man looks a lot like Chuck Norris. And uh, there you can compare the two. The resemblance is rather uncanny, isn't it? Um, but I, I mean no disrespect to Mr. Norris. Rather, it's to the credit of the Neanderthals that they look so much like you and me, because that's exactly what they were, human beings descendants from Adam and Eve. So we've looked at fossils for a little bit here. We've seen that fossils form rapidly. They don't require long periods of time. We've seen that the claims about missing links are often based on fragmentary remains or open to different interpretations. And we've seen that as Christians, we, won't want to put, we don't want to put these dead bones before Adam and Eve. They're not millions of years old. That means they're a consequence of Noah's flood. The flood provides, I mean, the fossil record provides powerful evidence that there was a worldwide flood. That's why we find seashells in the Himalayas and so forth. All the dinosaur bones we have are a consequence of that worldwide catastrophe. So if the fossils are buried quickly and turned to stone quickly, then the rock layers that they're found inside of must also form rapidly. Do we have any evidence of that from science? Yes, here's one good example from Mount St. Helens, which how many of you remember when this erupted back on May 18th, 1980? And uh, that initial eruption lasted nine hours. A lot of the ash and, and pumice that went up into the sky came down and hardened into this solid rock layer. That's a lot of rock from one little tiny volcano. But that's not the end of the story because less than a month later, the volcano erupted a second time and laid down all these alternating light and dark banded deposits. That's not one year after year after year. That whole stack was laid down in three hours on June 12th, 1980. And then less than two years after that, another eruption caused a mud flow that did Uh, tremendous damage to the landscape, and deposited this layer that hardened into stone as well. So that's quite a bit of geological activity from a single little tiny catastrophe. And if one little volcano can do that much work in a short amount of time, think about what the worldwide flood would do in the year that Noah was aboard the ark. Well, this is really just the tip of the iceberg that we've had time to cover together today. But I hope that the evidence that we've covered gives you confidence in this, that what we see in God's world agrees with what we read in God's word. Do you guys get excited about seeing how real science helps to support our faith? And can you see yourself sharing this with other people? Because think about this, not everybody gets to hear the evidence for creation in their public school classroom, <laughs> more than likely, right? And, and these books aren't stopped in the library. Um, the Discovery Channel is not going to talk about the evidence for the Bible. So how are we going to reach in this community in North Carolina? How are we going to reach people for the Lord? Well, one great way is to equip ourselves with those answers like we talked about in the beginning. And so I hope you don't mind it as I wrap up here, if I get a, a bit practical with you folks and just share about a few of the resources that we produce as a ministry that, that can help to equip you with those answers to to give you confidence in your faith and then help you to pass them on to your, your children, your friends, your neighbors. Uh, our magazine is our mo- most important resource. This is a full-color magazine. comes out every three months, every quarter. And uh, it's 56 pages, but no paid advertising. So lots of rich, meaty content, but it's, it's great geared towards, towards uh, lay folks. We've had articles about dinosaurs and Mount St. Helens. And here's one we had about these two baby girls who are twin sisters came from the same mom and dad. How is that possible since they obviously have very different skin shades? Well, actually, it's very easy to explain using modern genetics. And this helps us to show how all people groups are related going back to Adam and Eve in the recent past. So the magazine just has life-changing information. Uh, We get testimonies, more salvation testimonies through this resource than any other. And this woman said she's 99 years old, but she uses it to reach out to others. So if she can do it at that age, then any of us can, right? And even more encouraging is she sent us that testimony by email. 
So not a, not a tweet. Maybe we'll get one of those someday from a 99-year-old. But uh, anyway, just like we did before, if you're interested in signing up to help prevent long lines at the book tables, we're going to pass around these sign-up sheets at this time. So you can start filling things out now if you like. So if you want to sign up for the magazine today, first of all, you want to put down your, uh, you tear off one of these forms, uh, fill it out in detail, put down your email address as well, because uh, that way you'll get our digital version, a copy of the magazine. You get the print one mailed to your home, and then this is at no extra charge, the digital format you can share on up to five devices. So we do that, it that way to encourage you to actually pass on this information, help partner with us in spreading it around and share it with your friends and family. Uh, then also as an incentive, because we think of this as our best resource, we want to give you some free gifts if you sign up today. So if you get uh, a subscription, you'll get your first issue to take home and start reading right away. Plus, we'll give you two DVDs. First, a documentary on Darwin's life and how many of his beliefs have been shown to be wrong by modern-day science, even according to secular researchers. And we interview some evolutionists in that documentary. It's very interesting. They talk about dinosaur soft tissue and other things. Um, Here's another documentary also that we'll give you called Fallout, where we went on university campuses in the South, in the Bible Belt, secular universities, and interviewed students about their beliefs on origins. And they talk about, you know, how they, many of them, went to church in the beginning as a youth and then walked away from the church as they uh, began to believe in evolution. Anyway, if you guys want to hand out those uh, forms at this time, you can do that. And uh, let, let me mention, if you weren't here to hear the talk on dinosaurs, that was one of my four questions at the beginning. Well, did you know that scientists are now discovering soft, stretchy tissue from inside dinosaur bones that's not decayed away and not turned to stone? That's evidence that dinosaurs are only thousands of years old, not millions and billions. Powerful evidence. We found blood vessels and red blood cells from different types of dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rex and others. And so the evolutionists did not expect to find that material. It really fits with biblical creation, but not evolution. Dr. Mary Schweitzer said, how could the blood cells survive for 65 million years? That's a really good question. I don't think it's possible that it can. And so that's the kind of evidence we present in our magazine as well as our books. Um, Let me mention a couple of the books and DVDs. This one is the best-selling creation book of all time, great for high school students and up especially if they're going to go to public school, encounter this propaganda in the classroom. That'll help set the record straight, show the scientific evidence supports creation. If you're not a big reader, here's a great scientific one uh, to view, a documentary called Evolution's Achilles Heels. This is one of my personal favorites. Interviews 15 different Bible-believing scientists with PhDs, and they show how the evidence challenges evolution. These five hardcover books you can get as a set for youth, um, great ones to read to your kids. And we've got other timely topics that we cover, like same-sex marriage. We talked about how marriage is tied to Genesis, right? How it's that foundational history that Jesus quoted. And so uh, we set the record straight on some of the myths that are floating around about this subject as well. Uh, this one is a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11, if you want to go deep and and um, learn all the, the theology arguments and, and evidence for, for Genesis creation. We've got a website. Again, don't forget uh, the address there is creation.com. Lots of free uh, tools online. And for you folks in this area, you're not so far from Myrtle Beach, right? We actually have, if you're interested in, in learning more, we have a big conference coming up this year, this summer in July in Myrtle Beach. Uh, I'll be there speaking a few times. We'll have some special guests like Johnny Hunt, uh, different scientists uh, from our ministry and from, from outside. Uh, a great vacation time on the beach, and you can learn a lot more about how to defend your faith. Uh, Well, thanks uh, for letting me go over my time just a little bit here. I want to wrap up by just reminding us of where we began with this verse, because this is really written to all believers, not only those with, um, you know, a PhD in science, but each one of us needs to, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And so I hope you folks will take up that challenge. Arm yourselves with the answers so that you can show others that the Bible is true from the very beginning. All right, well, I thank you so much for your attention, and I will be around to answer your questions after we're done here. So um, God bless. Have a wonderful day. Well, Keaton, we want to thank you for coming and uh, sharing with us pleasure.
oh, sorry, a uh, creation um, worldview. Also, for the rest of you guys to know that uh, there's multiple books I've written from. I've written. <laughs> I haven't written any books. <laughs> there's a lot of books that I've read uh, dealing with youth and why they walk away from the church. And he really is uh, is on to something in what he's telling you. Is they've done study after study that students are growing up in church in God fearing homes. They go off to college. And, and they hear what's considered facts from a man with a Ph.D. and a white lab coat. And they believe him in what he says. And so uh, these resources aren't frivolous. Uh, we give up a, a good hour where we normally open God's word and share with you. Uh, but it's worth it to bring in a, a man like Keaton uh, to share with you uh, creation worldview so that you can get some of these resources in your homes and hopefully train your children at home before they go off to school and uh, and hear a different perspective. And so, uh, again, Keaton's going to be down here in the front at the close of the serv- service. There's going to be a handful of people at the tables in the back, in the back foyer area, if you'd like to pick up any of their books. Uh, I will tell you that uh, the people that write these books uh, have all sorts of massive degrees and are brilliant individuals. Uh, I was asking Keaton before the service started who his favorite author was out of all these people. And one of his favorite authors actually works for the Creation Ministries organization. His name's Jonathan Safardi. This guy named Jonathan plays 12 people in chess blindfolded. Okay, he's the type of guy, he puts a blindfold on himself, there's 12 people, they call out what their move is, and he plays each of them without looking at anything. I'm telling you, these are brilliant individuals who are believers in Jesus Christ, and also know that science backs up and gives testimony to what the Bible says. And so, just want to encourage you with some of these resources, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you again for all that you've shown us in this world. Lord, we thank you that everything that you've ever created points to you and how great you are. Lord, we pray that we never, excuse me, Lord, we thank you that we never have to worry about where science is going to lead us uh, because you created science as well. And Father, if we just study and we look for truth, we'll ultimately find you every time. So God, I thank you for these brilliant men who have written these resources. Lord, I thank you for Keaton and everything he shared with us. And Father, I pray that as we read your word, Uh, that we would be encouraged and we would grow closer to you each day. God, I pray for our kids that you would keep them close to you. And Lord, I pray that you would keep them for their entire life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you. It was good to see you today.